0: We're going to look at two stories uh, this morning. We've been in the book of Mark in this series, that we would get to know Jesus. Uh, We would come close to him as his followers, and then he would send us out into the work that he has for us, that that we would get to know Jesus and be transformed by who he is and follow him in all of our life. Uh, So we have been in the book of Mark, and and a lot of our 3Ds and, and groups are going deep into the scriptures together throughout the week to then figure out, how do we live like this Savior and this morning, we're at this place where, you know, Jesus is still up north in Galilee, his hometown, and kind of Nazareth area, and it's kind of funny, because uh, this is where that phrase is, uh, a prophet has no honor in his hometown comes from. He, he's there, and uh, people are saying things like, isn't this guy the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Wait, 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 isn't he the son of a carp... Like, who is this guy, Jesus, and, and what does he think he's doing? And, and then Jesus looks at his family, his friends, in a sense, his co-workers, right, the people he grew up with, and it says this little phrase, he says he, in verse 6 of chapter 6, it says he's marveled because of their unbelief. Now, you'd love it for Jesus to marvel at you for something, but probably not your unbelief, Uh, He looks at his family, his friends, his coworkers, and he says, man, I can't believe that you don't believe. And then he takes this group, uh, his disciples, his apostles, those those who are going to be with him and are going to be sent by him, those who have said, we do believe, we want to follow you, Jesus, and he he sends them out, and we get their story. And then uh, we also get the story of John the Baptist, who's living for Jesus full bore, and we say, man, the disciples, they have this amazing, fruitful ministry, and oh my gosh, John the Baptist, it doesn't go well for him. As we're going to just look at two stories of uh, what's it look like to follow Jesus, man, when when things are just going swimmingly and when it's just terrible. We want to get to know the Savior and live for him. So we're in chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that city. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is doing just what he said he would do when he called his first disciples in chapter 3, verse 14. He said, come, be with me, be transformed, knowing me, loving me, having all of your devotion, life and mind and heart, all, who, all you are transformed by me, Jesus. And then uh, once you are with me, I will send you out. And he says, come to me and then go out from me. And he says, you'll be a disciple, one who learns and sits at Jesus' feet, but you'll also be an apostle, one who is the sent one, sent out. And his disciples now uh, come to him and are now sent out from him. They go out two by two. I think this is uh, for companionship, effectiveness, and testimony. As they go out two by two because when things are getting tough, man, they've got arms to link up with. They can say, man, this is life following Jesus. is pretty rough right now. Would you walk with me in it as family? It's why we say we do life together following Jesus for the good of the world. That's why we're we're knit together as families on mission and community group and in 3Ds to go deep and and be with each other. Man, when things are wonderful or when things are terrible, we're walking two by two, one with another. No one sits alone. They go out two by two. He says this interesting thing. He says, you know, when you go into a city, stay in one spot. uh, Accept the hospitality of one family. Live in their home. It's it's. It, it, it kind of is strategic, right? It built a bridge for a relationship everywhere they go. Uh, sometimes we call it, it's like finding a person of peace, right? Going out and saying, you know, when somebody finds out you're a Christian, some will say, oh my gosh, I'm running away. And others will say, oh, that's interesting. Can you tell me more about that? He says, move close to those people. He says this other kind of weird thing uh, that if, if people refuse you, they will shake the dust off your sandals. And as a testimony saying, fine, have it your way. When you've lived and loved and shared, in this mission, this moment, he says, well, just let them have it their way if they don't receive you and don't receive me, Jesus. But I want to focus in on one of the phrases he says here. He says in verse 8 and 9, he charged them to take nothing for their journey. This is not how you pack. (laughs) Especially if you're me, my wife packs really small, but I, I like to take my stuff. It says no bread, no bag, no money, no money in your belt, and, and wear sandals. Don't even put on two tunics. He says, you go out for a journey, but don't take the necessities. Uh, you, you leave your self-sufficiency behind. When you go out to serve Jesus, you know, you don't have what it takes. You step into something that's way above, over your head. You take part in in a mission that's far grander than you are uh, to do a job that that is a task that uh, far outweighs anything you could accomplish on your own. He says, don't take these necessities. It's like going hunting without a gun fishing without a rod. It's like, don't take what is necessary. Why? Because in that spot, we find ourselves utterly dependent on God and on others utterly dependent on God and on others. It reminds me of this story in Judges. Uh, Gideon is with God's people, and he, uh, the Israelites have been unfaithful to God. So what happens often in Judges, the, uh, this outside force, this uh, army, the Midianites, have come in and they've conquered all of God's people, the Israelites. They've enslaved them at this point. And, and there's about 32,000 uh, in the army of God that Gideon has. 32,000 troops. And you think, okay, pretty formidable army. But in the, the valley right next door, just north of them, there's 132,000 Midianites. Uh, a, a huge, massive army. And, and then Gideon and God's people, this tiny army. And here's what I, I love. I, you know, Gideon is there, and the Lord says to Gideon in verse 2, The people with you, Gideon, your army, they're too many. They're too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. He says, this army of 32,000 in the face of 132,000, it's just too many. Lest you would boast and say, look what we did, man. We are an awesome church. I'm an awesome preacher. You're an awesome person. Any of us saying, this is not your victory to be had. So. Here's what I want you to do, Gideon, verse 3. Proclaim to the ears of the people, this is Judges chapter 7, whoever is fearful and trembling, that's a lot of people, by the way, because it's a tiny army facing a huge army. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from this Mount of Gilead. 22,000 of Gideon's troops leave at that opportunity. (laughs) 22, hit the road, and Gideon has 10,000 left, and he's thinking, this is not good, Lord, We do not have what it takes. It doesn't look like when we go into this battle with you, we will be successful, victorious. We don't have what it takes. This is not enough. What you've given me is not enough. I don't have the resources. Don't you feel like that? I mean, particularly following Jesus in this area, Montgomery County, Maryland, D.C., Don't you sometimes feel like, you know, we're going in with a squirt gun into a blazing fire? And don't don't you just want to say, Lord, God, are you sure? Don't you know what people think about Christians? Like, we don't have a chance, Lord. We're just a little church right here in the middle of this mighty force against you. Don't you sometimes feel like that in your family? You're pouring your life out with your kids, you feel like, Lord, man, you, you haven't given me the resource I need to do this. Like, I feel completely insufficient as a dad. I feel completely insufficient as a mom. Don't you, don't you know this is too much to handle with your coworkers? You go to talk to them about Jesus. Don't, don't you know, Lord, they're just going to say, not a chance. We only got 10,000. They got 132,000. Verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, Gideon, the people are still too many. You still too have many. Yeah, you have too many people, too many troops. 10,000 is way too much. So take them down to the water, and I'll test them there. And, and then he does this really interesting thing. And any who uh, lap up water, the Lord says, keep them in the army. And then anyone who kneel at the river, well, uh, let them go home. So there's 300 left. There's 300 left. And you got to think, Gideon... And we are often just scratching our heads saying, this journey is too much for us, Lord. We don't have what it takes. How are you going to do a mighty work through this little person and these little resources? And the Lord said to Gideon in verse 7, with the 300 men who leapt up water, I will save you. I will save you, God says. Uh, Let you make no mistake, Gideon, Matt, John, Sally, whoever, let you make no mistake, I, God, will save you. I will do a work in your life as you go out uh, to spots that are above your resources, that are, that are more than you can handle. Uh, when you go into your home and you face something that is more than you can handle, when you go out with the word of God, following the Savior Jesus, I will save you. And in this case, he will save through you by his power, by his mercy, that none of us would say, man, I did that. I did that. God is doing a great work in us and through us, a work that we cannot accomplish on our own. Take nothing, rely on him. That's what Jesus says. He says, I'll give you the authority to do this or that. I'll meet you in this or that. Take nothing, rely on God. Uh, unfortunately, in my life, it's often hoard everything, rely on no one. <laughs> Isn't that how we often live? I got to keep i got to hold on to, and i got to rely on nobody. If I'm hurting, I'm not going to share it. Uh, Things that look too big for me that God's calling me into obedience, I'm not going to go into. I'll do only what I can accomplish. Where is your self-sufficiency suppressing the power of God? Where is your self-sufficiency suppressing the power of our God? See, I think for a lot of us, we are only going to attempt what we think we can accomplish. I'm only going to attempt what I think I can accomplish. Particularly when it comes to sharing with other people, right? Like, it, I'm not going to share about who Jesus is and what he's done in my life with that person because I know how they're going to respond. Like, I can't change their mind. They think this way or that way. They've pinned Christians as this or that. Or, or you're not going to step out in some sort of obedience that you think, man, I, I don't have what it takes to, to, to jump out in that obedience. Until you do. Until you step out and it's way over your head and you don't have the resources that it takes and then God says, I will save you and through you. I will do the work. That's just what the disciples do. They go out with way less than is needed but they go out in the authority and the power of their God and their Savior, Jesus. And it's amazing, they come back in verse 12 and so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent And they cast out many demons and appointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then we get their full return in verse 30 uh, after the story of John the Baptist. The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told Him all they had done and all they had taught. Uh, you know, this is talked about in other uh, Gospels, and it's kind of a huge party at this moment. They're getting back, and they're like, God, you showed up, Jesus. It was amazing. Man, all that we did and all this healing and all we taught and shared, people responded like we never thought they'd respond when we told them about you, Jesus. And, and people were healed like we never thought they'd be healed, Jesus. It was amazing this this is an amazing moment in history jesus is sending out his apostles and he's giving them this authority to heal like on a drop of a dime over and over to validate this message that's going out and to, to validate the name that's never been heard in jesus And it's a very particular moment in a transitionary way where where the gospel is going out and they're they're healing like crazy over and over. And God still heals, by the way, in a very majestic and and particular way. Uh, Often it's through the majesty uh, of the mystery and miraculous work of healthcare workers that he's gifted and skilled in such an amazing way to bring his healing to his people. And you just look at it and you say, unbelievable that that person in the medical, medical world has gotten to this place by your grace. And then also sometimes, in abnormal ways, he'll reach in, too. Like we were praying for this guy who had cancer and leukemia, and then and then the Lord uh, worked in through medicine, but also some ways that just made you scratch your head, and you're like, God, I can't believe you did that. And the healing you brought and the way you brought it is unbelievable. I, and then we've also walked with friends who have, and they've walked in cancer all the way to their death. And we scratch our head, and we look up, and we say, I can't believe they died in the way they did, trusting you all the way into eternity. And we scratch our head knowing now that they're healed fully in their resurrection. We say, wow, God. We go out in this authority with this message uh, to do what we could never do. And we praise our God when it's done. And that's just what's happening for these folks. They are coming back saying, wow, the fruit was amazing, Jesus. There's nothing like it. You know, uh, just last week, I'm going to tell some of their story. That, uh, she shared this story publicly, so uh, some of these details I'll share that I wouldn't typically share. Uh, just last week, one of, one of my favorite families dedicated, I know I'm not supposed to have favorites. I'm a pastor. You're all my favorite. <laughs> one of my favorite families. Came. <laughs> they dedicated their two kiddos up here. They dedicated their two kids to the Lord last week. Now, it was years ago. They, they lived here for the first time, and and I would gotten this email from this gal, and she just said, hey, something you said in that sermon I'd really like to talk a little bit more about, and I said, that'd be awesome. And so we set up a meeting, uh, me, Courtney, and then uh, two gals uh, that knew uh, this woman really well um, had started a Bible study at NIH, National Institute of Health, right down the road, and uh, they started this Bible study, and then she started attending it. And then through it, uh, uh, God brought just a, a deep faith into her life, a trust in him. And it started radically reshaping her life that she wants to, man, she's like, I want to follow Jesus. And so we're talking through that, and, 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 and they're getting kind uh, of to, to deepen in their relationship with these Marys and these others and these friends. And they're growing in their faith. And, and then uh, this gal says, I want to go to Moscow. We were doing this mission trip years back. She's like, I want to go to Moscow. And we're all going to Moscow because we were supporting some missionaries that can't go to Moscow now. <laughs> and it's supporting some missionaries out there. And so we go. And then on the flight back, she says, Pastor Matt, I want to talk to you because I, I'm, I'd like to date this guy that I just met. And I'm like, are you sure? Does he love Jesus? And she had just recently really begun to follow Jesus, right? And, and she goes, well, yeah, yeah, he loves, I think he loves Jesus. <laughs> And what happened in their relationship was, yeah, he, he had faith, but then over time, like it really, his faith continued to grow and grow and grow as he leads and serves in an amazing ways, following Jesus and loving and serving her. And then last week, they come and they dedicate their two little babies to know, love, and follow Jesus. And I just want to say, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like being a part of the, the work of God. By the grace of God. And, and, and so many of you are a part of their story. And they're a part of your story. And, and I look out and I, I see so many of you who are, who are reaching out to neighbors, coworkers, and friends. And, and for years have loved and cared for and poured out your life to see them be loved and cared for and, and flourish. And then also meet your Savior. And over time you just step back and when you see that happen you say, man, there's nothing like that. That's amazing. When somebody risks to say, I'm going to start a Bible study at my workplace. And I'm just going to invite the people there. And you kind you're, of you, you're tiptoe out to it and say, this is a bit too much for me. And then God shows up and you say, wow, there's nothing like that. When you send that email out to, to the whole list serve of your neighborhood and say, hey, we're doing a men's Bible study. We're going to uh, eat and meat and drink bourbon and talk about the book of Mark. And you're like, what am I doing? And, and then they, some show up and you say, wow, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like seeing the Lord transform someone's life over time by His grace. They came back cheering about it. They just came back cheering. But this is an inclusio story, which means Mark begins the story of sending out. When, when you're with Jesus, then you're sent out to do His work, and, and it just goes swimmingly. And they're like, woo but he's going to return to that story when they return until the end of it, right in verse 30. But he's going to sandwich in between it. He's going to include right in the thick of it, the middle of that story, the life of John the Baptist. The stories we don't tell about the times you share your faith. <laughs> the stories we don't tell about how faithful you've lived for Jesus for years and years and seen nothing in your family, or in your workplaces. And you're trying. You're trying to share the gospel and Nothing. I agree. I agree. You know, see, I've thought a lot about that too, like the idea of systemic problems in our culture. It's because we're so ungodly. That's how I would answer I think. We are so ungodly. And that's why the, man, that's why we need a Savior for forgiveness to transform us from the inside out as individuals following him. And that's what Jesus is about. He says, come be with me and be sent out to bring good news of life transformation. And when John the Baptist is doing that, it falls apart. It just falls apart for him. I want to get into this story. And I, you know, I don't know if you're ever a part of church. You may have heard this story. And when you read the story of John the Baptist, it feels a bit more like a cartoon, truthfully. You know, uh, I don't know if you uh, were ever a part of a church where there was like a flannel graph, right? Like, and you got little John the Baptist, and you're sticking him on the flannel graph, and then his head falls off, and you think, oh my, there goes his head. It's kind of cartoonish. Uh, But I started thinking about it. He's beheaded. And a guy who's become a good friend of mine here at the church, become a member here, uh, he's the the president of the ICC, which is International Christian Concern, which is a group that is trying to go care for folks all over the world and also share the good news of Jesus. But they're in such persecuted areas where Christians are literally losing their heads. And I said to him, man, does this stuff still happen? And he said, yes. He said just last week he heard his last case of a friend, a team that they're supporting where this just happened. And he said the week before that, and then the week before that, and the week before that. So as we get into John the Baptist's story, I want to turn this story from a cartoon into reality. uh, As we listen to Jeff and share a little bit of the story, there's a little bit of graphic nature to this story. Uh, But it highlights the fact that Jesus is not just worth living for, as we see in the apostles' life right here, where they're just saying, man, it is amazing to live for you. This is so cool to see you transform lives. But he's also worth dying for. Uh, Let's watch this video together.
1: of the things about persecution video is you get exposed to the very worst evil in the world. Uh, You know, on the other hand, what you see is just the heroics of the persecuted church and so much that's good and they teach us so much. And this is often, I think, why people endure the pain, the the horror that you sometimes experience. And um, uh, to that point that we just received a video from inside Afghanistan, this was sent to us from uh, one of our partners, one of our close partners that we helped escape. Out of afghanistan this is from contacts inside and he actually knows this person so we're not going to show you the full video it's too horrible um but this is his friend being beheaded <laughs> so obviously i there are no words after that and again I don't even want to show you the most horrible parts because there's just nothing good for your soul in there and it's hard to comprehend how a religion or how people could do this Um, and yet it is happening all the time it's happening in Afghanistan we expected it to happen more and more and this is one of those ones that is now coming out where uh, the Taliban is going after the Christians they're watching they're spying all the time and when they find somebody they will do the worst if they don't turn back uh, to Mohammed so anyways, please, uh, as always, keep uh, the victims in prayer, keep the church in, in prayer that they would be uh, emboldened by this. So oftentimes this is, this is actually the thing, it purifies the church. Anybody who's wishy-washy will get out of the church and only the most bold and only the ones who say, Father, I have nowhere to go. You have the words of eternal life. So that's who's left in the church and that creates a very pure, a very potent church. So you pray for them and also pray for the persecutors, pray for these radical, Muslims that are doing this, that they would be convicted, because so often this is what happens. You know, as they get more and more into Islam, as they get more radicalized, they are making choices, and you know their consciences are, are uh, either getting burned or numbed. But many times they say, "I can't do this anymore," and they'll kind of come to a crossroads. We pray for the persecutors, and I would urge you to do the same. Don't hate. That's the world's way. And God's love is transforming. He will forgive anybody for everything. And you can imagine if one of these persecutors comes to Christ. So we pray for that, pray for some uh, real radical salvations. Uh, but in the meantime, keep your brothers and sisters in prayer and help us help them. God bless you for caring.
0: I want us to spend just, you can't quite go back into the text right after that. I want us to spend a minute in prayer. Uh, let's just pray silently uh, for our men and women and kids uh, who are following Jesus overseas, particularly in Afghanistan. And let's pray for those uh, who are persecuting them that they might know the love of Jesus and be radically transformed by his grace. Let's spend a minute or two in prayer. Father, I pray for this man's family and his team. God, would you comfort them? As Jeff was talking about, would you continue to embolden them with the good news of a God who loves and saves through Jesus? God, I pray for those who are uh, involved in this killing. God, God, that they might know you and your grace, that these awful acts would drive them to your mercy seat, that they would cling to a Savior who knows and loves them, would embrace them and transform them by grace. God, we're just struck. um, Your son, his worth is highlighted by how much we pay for him. And when, when a man like this pays with his life for following your son, God, we're just reminded you are just exceedingly and eternally valuable. You are worth dying for. But God would you radically transform the way that we live that we would orient every aspect of who we are around the glory and the worth and the value of your son who has poured out his life for us would you make us heralds that, that we would talk all about him and how he's changing us by his grace that God wretched fools like us and God would would we give our whole lives to him even to the point of death? that's in Christ's name we pray Amen. You know, uh, in the book of Mark, uh, Jesus, he he takes center stage, right? There's only two times throughout the book of Mark that anyone else has talked about for an extended amount of time. And and those two times, uh, the person who's talked about is John the Baptist. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, we, we get this picture of who the John the Baptist is, right? He's going to be the one who's going to come and, and talk about this Savior who's about to come. And, he, and right when Jesus shows up on the scene, he points right to him. He's like, That's the Lamb of God, the Son we're all waiting for, the Christ. That's the Savior we're waiting for. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. And that first passage, it ends in verse 14 of chapter 1 in Mark with, And John was arrested. And that's kind of the last we hear of John and and really anyone else but Jesus in the book of Mark until right here where where John shows up again. Because what's happened is Jesus' disciples are going out and and all this amazing work is being done. And and you can almost just picture, oh my gosh, that whole time, forever from verse 14 of chapter 1, like Jesus and his ministry is taking off and, and John the Baptist is in jail. And Herod, King Herod, hears about this group going out with Jesus. And much like in chapter 8, like, who do you say that I am starts to occur, right? And, and King Herod, now this is uh, not Herod the Great. Herod the Great is uh, this guy's dad, uh, Herod Antipas' dad. And uh, Herod the Great is the one we know uh, in the birth story of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 and others where uh, he's the one who slaughters uh, age 2 and below in hopes that he would slaughter Jesus and, and kill him when he's born. That's uh, Herod the Great. So this guy's not from great stock, right? So uh, that's Herod the Great. His son now is Herod Antipas. That's who we have here. Sometimes he's called Herod the Tetrarch, which just means uh, he's a ruler of a fourth. Uh, Or Herod Antipas is kind of a more specific name. And so uh, he's the one that Jesus will call the fox. He's kind of slimy and sly. It uh, rules over the fourth of the uh, kingdom of Israel up in the northern area, which is Jesus' hometown, which is uh, why we get this piece of the story. Herod Antipas now hears, wow, uh, these guys are going out from Jesus, and they're doing amazing work. And, and who do you think, uh, King Herod Antipas, uh, that, that Jesus is? And he's like, uh, it could be John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. And now uh, we get word that uh, King Herod thinks, this is probably John the Baptist, because he knows he's had john the baptist beheaded and he still feels guilty about it so he's thinking in this resurrection is the coming of my judgment right like he's like oh my gosh john the baptist is here to bring the hammer down on me for what i did to him now the situation is that uh, king herod is now married to herodias who was uh, philip his brother herod's brother it was his wife Now, John the Baptist, as we learn from the text, uh, has said, you can't take your brother's wife as your own. He's speaking up against uh, this immorality that John is living in. He's speaking truth to power. He is is saying, this is not the way of God, John the Baptist says, and that gets him jailed. Now, Herodias is like, I actually want to kill John the Baptist for saying that. That's uh, Herod's new wife, the uh, previous wife of his brother, Actually, wants John the Baptist killed, but we read in verse 20 here that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see what's happening in Herod's life. He, he's both kind of uh, compelled by uh, the holiness and the message of John, but at the same time, he's convicted by it. He, he's repelled by it, right? Like, he, he's like, man, I know what I'm doing is wrong. So he's drawn to this holy man with this holy message and the way he's living. He's probably drawn to all these aspects of him, but at the same time, he's like, man, this is convicting about my sin, He knows his sinfulness, his wretchedness. Over and over in his life, sexual sin has led to disaster in his own life and now through him. And now what occurs is an opportunity comes about when Herod on his birthday, verse 21, gives a banquet for his nobles and military commanders, the the who's who of Galilee, northern Israel. They're all there. And Herod is, is, is captured by their approval, right? Uh, he, he wants to put on a good party, not just for himself, but for them. And Salome, which is uh, Herodias' daughter, put it all together. This is uh, the king's niece. It's getting worse and worse. Sexual sin. That's why, I think that's why uh, Paul is like, hey, look, well, when sexual sin starts to trickle into your life, just run. Just get away. Run. It leads to disaster. He just says, get away from it. Because it's brought disaster in his life and all through him. When Herodias dances, pleases Herod and his guests. And he gives this oath, this promise. He says, you can have up to half my kingdom. Whatever you want, it's yours. It's kind of an idiom of the time just to say, I'll be generous. You can, give, I'll, I'll, you can have whatever you ask for. And she immediately asked for the head of John the Baptist. Not in a cartoonish kind of way, but he's actually beheaded. For his proclamation of who Jesus is and how he'll live and proclaim what is right and wrong. And John the Baptist is beheaded. I think what we see in John the Baptist, who's been with Jesus and now is proclaiming the good news of the gospel and repentance towards Jesus, is to live a faithful and sometimes fruitless life. To not serve the fruit, but to serve the Savior. And to not only be in it when, man, things are going amazing, but to say he is worth it even now. You see, when John the Baptist is living this fruitless life, the disciples are just, it's amazing for them. By worldly standards, John the Baptist, his ministry went from really not great to, to really terrible. You know, in the beginning of chapter 1 of Mark, we see you know, he lives as an outcast life. He's, he's eating locusts and honey, and he's kind of weird. But then he, he starts to actually gain some disciples as he's talking about the Savior to come, and he's baptizing people. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and he loses all of his followers. They're all like, we're following Jesus. And John the Baptist is like, good, you should. But, but his whole, uh, all of his followers are gone. Then he's arrested in verse 14. His whole ministry is now gone. His ministry has gone, his followers are gone, and he ends up arrested and then beheaded. And what I think we see in him is, man, Jesus isn't just worth living for. He is worth dying for. You know, the disciples, when Jesus is teaching this hard teaching, everyone's leaving him. They're all just leaving. And Jesus looks right at his disciples and he says, are you guys going to leave too? And they go, where would we go? you have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? We want to follow you. Every one of the disciples are either exiled or executed. John, uh, who writes the book of John, is exiled to the island of Patmos. And and, uh, Peter, he's crucified upside down. Peter helps write the book of Mark along with John Mark. Uh, James, uh, Jesus' follower and brother, is thrown off of a temple roof. He lands on the ground uh, and then is stoned by those around him. All to their death, they're all saying, we want to give our lives away for the good of others. We want others to be blessed and we want them to know about our resurrected Savior. They're giving their lives away for the good of others. All the way to their death as they're killed saying he was resurrected for us. It's an amazing story of a Jesus who is worth dying for. Yeah, you know, it's just a chapter later. Jesus is going to kind of go from his hometown now, and he shifts gears in chapter 8. And they're having a similar conversation, which occurs right here with Herod, which is, who do you guys say that I am? And Jesus is asking his disciples that. Who do you say that I am? And they give the same three answers. It's almost like verbatim. They're like, man, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And then he looks right at him. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the one we're all waiting for. You're the one we want to live our lives for. You are the one. You're the Savior who we're all waiting for. He says, that's right. And then he goes on and he says this. Whoever would save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life, hands it all over to Jesus for his sake, and the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? He says, that's right. You see, Jesus, he's worth living for. He's worth dying for it. As he's headed to the cross, what we see is we, we have a Savior who, who left heaven, the glory of God the Father, and on the throne above all things. And he, he gives it all. He doesn't wear two, three tunics down. He sheds his glory, and he comes to live his life for us perfectly to, to live as we could never live and and then he finds himself standing before Pilate who's much like Herod who says I don't want to crucify you but the crowd does so he sends him to the cross and on that cross Jesus pays for our sin our sinfulness our wretchedness and welcomes us in as sons and daughters and gives us a life transforming message of the gospel he brings us in and then he sends us out he is worth living for he is worth dying for if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, what we do is we remind ourselves of that every week. We remind ourselves that we have a Savior who left everything to come die in our place, to come live a righteous life in our place, to come resurrect, that we would never be alone, but we would be as children for now into all of eternity. That His blood was spilled on that cross at the, at the hands of an unholy, tyrannical leader but he did it all on purpose. Jesus did it all on purpose for us to make us his sons and daughters, his children, his family together. To involve us in an amazing movement of proclaiming the good news of the gospel, to living our lives fully for him. So if you're a follower of his this morning, you take and eat and rejoice over who he is and what he's done for you. If if you're not yet following him, then maybe this morning, would you just pray? Would you talk with him? And embrace the grace that he offers you to transform your life and make you his son or his daughter. Let's take and eat together and rejoice over who our Savior is and what he's done.